Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk to Stephen Vaughan. Stephen was the General Counsel of the United States Trade Representative, or USTR. And so basically, he was the, the chief lawyer for Robert Lighthizer. When you see pictures in the in the press of Robert Lighthizer at hearings or after rounds of negotiations, Stephen Vaughn is, is usually there in the background right behind him. Or at least he was until April, when after two years, he left the Trump administration. Now, but before we begin, we should uh, say a few things. This episode is very long. Um, we cover Trump administration policy on China, on the EU, on the, on the World Trade Organization. But before you send us angry emails, remember, you don't have to listen to it all at once. Uh, there are timestamps in the show notes if you want to skip to the topic you find most interesting. So that the episode wasn't even longer, we made some pretty challenging editing decisions. And just to explain the final result, the point of this episode is not really to try to win any of the arguments here. I think that kind of episode might have lasted several days, and I'm not sure any minds would have ended up being changed. But what we are trying to do is to give listeners a better understanding of the thinking behind some of the Trump administration's trade policies. If this is the first episode of Trade Talks that you've heard and you're unclear about what the all of the arguments might be, then, then please, please go back and listen to our back catalogue. And with that out of the way, here's our conversation with Stephen. We are here on November 22nd with Stephen Vaughan. Stephen, hello. Hello. So... Could you tell us a bit about your career? So so what did you do before you worked in the Trump administration? So I was a lawyer here in D.C. I did trade law for a long time at a firm called Skadden Arps. And uh, in 2016, I was working at a firm called King & Spaulding. My former boss at Skadden Arps was uh, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, and he got the job as USTR and asked me if I wanted to come and help. And over your career, is there any, I guess, set of industries that you worked with particularly closely? I've worked with a lot of steel companies. I've worked with a number of, most of my practices involve domestic producers uh, in unfair trade. Mm-hmm. And so when, when exactly did you leave the Trump administration and what are you doing now? Yeah, so my last day was April the 30th. And I'm now a partner at uh, King & Spaulding here in town. And I do want to emphasize that I'm really speaking only for myself, not for anybody else, and, and certainly not for anybody who's currently in the administration. We want to cover a lot in, in this conversation. Um, but first of all, so I, I know that you have been a Trade Talks listener in the past. And I also know that you uh, disagree with some of the positions that we have taken. Uh, some of which have been fairly critical of the of the Trump administration's policies. So, so first, big open-ended question. <laughs> You're smiling. What what do you think we have gotten wrong? Um, I thought about this question a fair amount. I would say this. I would say that the biggest question is that, and it's not just you, it's a lot of the people who do trade in Washington and think about trade in Washington. I think they are conflating really three different questions. One, what should our trade policy be? Two, how do we help the people who've been hurt by that trade policy? And three, who gets to make the trade policy? And I think those are actually three very, very distinct questions. And there is a tendency in Washington to think that the answer to all of these questions is we sit down with the folks at the WTO and whatever comes out of that process, that's what we all live with. And I think that's a mistake. And so what would your answer to those three questions then be? I think in the first question, what should our trade policy be? I think we have to have enormous flexibility to deal with all the many different and varying issues that come up in a country of over 300 million people. I think we should think about trade policy more the same way we think about tax policy. Some people are going to want lower taxes. Some people are going to want higher taxes. But a lot of this really gets into the details and the particular nuances at a particular situation. And so you need a lot of flexibility. Two, the issue about what do you do with the people who are on the other side of the trade policy. I think you have to have political solutions that will sort of uh, allow people to feel like the system is working and they're being treated fairly. 
And then three, in terms of who makes the trade policy, it has to be made by U.S. elected officials because they're the only ones who are really responsible to the voters. And it really is their job to sort out like what kind of a country we want to be and how trade policy is going to fit into that. If you accept that Americans should have flexibility, do you accept that other governments should have flexibility too? And here I'm thinking of the the Chinese state. Yes, I think I do accept that other countries are going to have flexibility. In fact, I think the reality of the situation is that other countries have flexibility and they do act. And I think we have been too constrained in how we respond to that. So we have been trying for a very long time to get uh, Europe to accept our beef hormones, which they promised our which they promised to do when they joined the WTO. It's clear they're not going to do that. Um, we have been trying to get China to make a lot of changes to their trade policy. They may or may not do that. So I think other countries are setting out their own trade policies, and I think the Americans have to do the same. So let's talk about China. We don't know the terms of a phase one deal yet if we're actually going to have a phase one deal. I guess we should first say that we, we probably agree that there are problems with some of the ways in which the, the Chinese economy has evolved. It hasn't become as market-oriented as perhaps was anticipated or, or hoped. But my issue, and I think the, the question that I'm going to get to here, involves the strategy and whether or not the Trump administration is actually going to end up resolving these concerns. From the outside, it, it looks a bit chaotic. Uh, there was this recent article from Bloomberg's Jenny Leonard and, and Sean Donnan describing this as as something that started off as a, as a reasonable process and has now descended into a bit of a mess. So can you just tell us a, a bit about what the, what the strategy is uh, from the Trump administration on China? Well, I think the president has been very clear and straightforward from the beginning. And he, his basic outlook has been that China has a choice in terms of how they deal with the United States. They can either make the type of structural market opening, market efficient changes that you referenced and that we would all like to see, or they will not have the same level of access to the U.S. market. And I think he's been very consistent on that from the beginning. And I think a lot of what you're seeing in the process has been just what it's like when you have negotiations and, and when you have give and take. I mean, this is, uh, this is what trade negotiations look like. And I think everybody accepts that and understands that. And I think if you look at how the, the markets are responding and the markets are reacting, you know, unemployment is really low. Inflation is really low. The Dow is relatively high. So I think we definitely have policy space to make this uh, work. And I think that's what the president has been doing. Are you at all worried about some of this trade policy from the Trump administration that we, we've seen, that that might backfire uh, and actually that might lead the Chinese to do more of the policies that, that have been so so criticized? Um, and an obvious example might be the, the cases of of ZTE and, and Huawei and how you know these threats to cut them off from U.S. suppliers could have emboldened voices inside China to actually do more of the industrial policy that, that has been criticized. Well, I think everybody has to understand this is a complicated relationship and there are no really easy choices one way or the other. And you have to make very difficult decisions about which is the best path to go down. But do I think what we're doing is more likely to be effective than simply letting them have their way, which is what we were pretty much doing before? Yeah, I think this is more likely to be effective. Because what we're telling them is, if you don't change, well, then you just don't get the same level of benefit. And and I think it is important to understand a lot of the uncertainty that people are, are worried about really has to do with China. They have to decide what they want to do. And that's what, we're, that's what we're waiting for. And they've been sending mixed signals, as you know, for a very, very long time, way before President Trump got elected. So um, they will ultimately decide where they want to go. But in the meantime, they will not have the same access to this market uh, if they want to keep going with these policies. You just said that, that you think that this new strategy is, is more likely to work than, than the old one. But the point I might make would be that, that 
there were other strategies available. There, there was also the strategy that we've mentioned a lot on trade talks, which would have involved bringing together uh, a coalition of, of countries, maybe filing a big case at, at the WTO. And you're, you're making you're making funny faces. Um, could, could you explain why that wasn't the strategy that you chose? Well, in the first place, there have been a lot of efforts between the United States and other countries to talk about China. Um, Ambassador Lighthizer and, and Commissioner Malmstrom and the Japanese government put out a number of trilateral statements seeking to get consensus in sure, terms but, of what market-oriented forces would look like. But everything I've heard suggests that the bilateral negotiation was the priority, right? That the trilateral really was an afterthought in terms of the, the level of engagement with these two processes. Well, I, okay, so let me, there's kind of two parts to your question then. So let's talk first about the case. So the United States just won a big victory in a case involving the European Union uh, in, in terms of subsidies that they're providing to Airbus. So that is one important industry. And that case has currently been at the WTO for 15 years. So I think the idea that you're going to use a similar process to constrain people who have set goals that are supposed to be settled by 2025 is not very realistic. I think on the other side, in terms of do you know, putting together a coalition of the willing against uh, uh, China, I, I haven't seen much evidence either in this administration or in the last administration or in the administration before that, that there is a significant coalition of the willing. I think the European Union has been very careful not to pick sides between the United States and China. And I really think there's very little the United States could do to get them to change their minds. But why not others? Why not try to bring others on side? The question for the Americans is, what, what do you do? And I think what they've been trying to do is they've been trying diplomacy with other countries. You saw, for example, that in the USMCA, there are provisions in there that are designed to have Mexico and Canada work more closely with us on China. You've seen them in this trilateral process try to work with the Europeans and the Japanese. So there are efforts being made on the diplomatic side. And I think there is a real interest in getting other countries to take this as seriously as we do. At the same time, I think the patience of the United States States is is not unlimited. This is urgent for us in a way that it's not necessarily urgent for other countries. And so I think it's simply a question of each country and each group is pursuing its own interests. And when they coincide, they will coincide. And when they don't coincide, they won't coincide. Yeah, I guess there are a couple of counters. So, so one would be, okay, yes, there was a lot of impatience, but you could also argue that, well, unless you have that united front it's really hard to see how you would get the Chinese to sit up and, and take notice. So yes, you want to do things quickly, but realistically, if you want to achieve something as difficult as actually a, a policy change in China, it just does take time. It does take time to build that coalition. It, it's not something that you can sort of shortcut through. And then the question to me is, what do you do in the meantime, right? In other words, while you're waiting for other countries to sort of get to where we are on these issues, do you still allow China to have full access to this market? Do you still allow them to use China 2025 in ways that are going to allow them to attack this market? Or do you say, whatever we can do and whatever we may not be able to do, the one thing we can do is control access to the U.S. market, and that we are going to do? Can we talk about enforcement? This was one of those areas in, in the upcoming deal that I know has been super controversial. And, and I think we'd be the first to say that this is not an easy problem to solve, right? It's really, really difficult given all the opacity in the, the Chinese system. So it's not like there's a there's a kind of easy off-the-shelf option there for enforcing any trade deal. Do you have an idea of, of how you see a possible enforcement system working? I think that's obviously something that the administ administration has given a lot of thought to. And I think it's something that, you know, my guess is, is that they will be seeking some sort of uh, an arrangement whereby if China makes more promises and does not live up to those promises, then there will be consequences for China in terms of what access they have to the U.S. market. There's not a lot else the United States can do in terms of enforcement. I do want to make one other point here, which is, is that, as you know, there have been a number of uh, unconventional suggestions. For example, blocking student visas or doing things more in the human rights space or going after individual companies like ZTE. And for the most part, the president has pushed back 
on those type of actions um, and has tried to kind of keep the focus on the trade side of the relationship as opposed to dragging in non-trade factors. Why is that? So if I if I look at China and what the government is doing now, their actions on human rights seem really bad. Um, Hong Kong, Xinjiang. Uh, if you wanted a, a tougher approach to China, why separate out the trade and the human rights stuff? I think there's. I think what you're going to see here in the United States is is that we're going to have three categories of people in terms of what we do about China. I think you're going to have one group of people who remain optimistic and hopeful and want to engage with China. I think you're going to have a second group that is going to look at things like Hong Kong and and some of the other practices that are happening over there and are going to push for more decoupling and to not have the type of relationship. And I think where you see the president is between those two groups. He wants to work with China to the extent he thinks that working with China is to the benefit of the United States. Um, But he has been consistently unwilling either to push for decoupling or to say we're going to go back to the status quo. I do think that one, one possibility that everyone should be thinking about is that as time goes on, issues like Hong Kong and some of the other human rights things that we're seeing in China may make it more difficult for any president to, to have a good trade deal with China and may overtake some of the issues that we've been hearing up to this point. So I think that the longer the controversy goes on, there's been kind of a working assumption that is time, that time is on the side of the doves and that we will eventually go back to where we were before. But that may not turn out to be the case. Can I ask a bit more of the, the details of the, on the enforcement piece, though? So are what we're thinking about with even if there is a deal that, that has some kind of enforcement with China, are we ever going to get back to a system of impartial third-party adjudication of this? Or is it always going to be something that's tied to American leverage and, and tied to a unilateral decision by the United States of whether or not China is living up to these commitments? So now I think we've, we've sort of come to, a, to me, that's a different question, right? In other words, I don't, I think if you're really just talking about getting other countries to do what you want the other country to do, I think most of the time the best way to do that is going to be to use the direct leverage of the United States in terms of its market. I do recognize that there may be situations where for diplomatic reasons, um, maybe it's easier for another country to do what you want them to do if they can point to arbitrators who made a ruling uh, against them. Um, And I think that, to me, is something that really needs to be decided more on a case-by-case basis uh, in terms of whether you think an arbitration process is going to help. I I think in terms of China, some people think they are more likely to respond to arbitration. Uh, I'm more skeptical in that regard. I think that what they've tended to do is to make very, very small changes and pretty much go on with the way they were doing things before. So I think, you know, they're going to they're going to ultimately decide sort of what's in their own best interest and we have to decide how we want to deal with that. Okay. So Samaya, let's shift gears from China to the EU. One thing that's just been reported is that there may be a change in the way that the US engages with the EU. So what we've seen so far is we've seen um the Section 232 investigation into into autos. There was supposed to be this negotiation to you know, end the national security threat posed by imports from the EU of cars and car parts. There was a kerfuffle. There were hearings about the French digital services tax, and there was a, a kind of temporary deal over that. And then, obviously, there's this, this case that is about the subsidies that the various European governments give to Airbus, a big, a big plane carrier. And so one of the things that's been reported is that actually perhaps basically all the complaints are going to be bundled into a Section 301 investigation into the EU's trade policies. Do you think that would be wise? What, what would one hope to get out of that? Well, I don't know what I don't know what they're going to do, and I've read those same press reports, and I don't want to comment on whether or not that's even something that's under consideration because I don't know. I would say this: I think the Europeans um, 
when you sort of look at the Trump administration and you look at what's happened over the last couple of years, they have made uh, a deal with Korea. They've made a big deal with Mexico. They made a very big deal with Canada. They made deals with Japan and have other productive negotiations going on with Japan. They've had long negotiations with China. They're in negotiations with India. Um, and for the most part, the Europeans have refused to have serious conversations with the administration. Um, I think that was a mistake. I think the Europeans should take U.S. concerns more seriously, and that may ultimately have consequences on the relationship between the United States and the EU. So from the, from the European side, the uh, I suspect there may be some Europeans listening who might be a bit surprised by that take, right? And from their perspective, they might think that actually it's the U.S. not engaging with them, the U.S. that's so... Uh, distracted by China bilateral negotiations, not being clear about what they actually want from the EU, uh, you're making you're making faces again. Um, what would what would be your response to that? I think the United States has been uh, very clear that they did not like the French digital services tax, and France went ahead with it anyway. I think the United States has been very clear that they have concerns about U.S. Uh, ag access to agricultural access to the EU market. Um, Europeans haven't been willing to negotiate on that very much. Uh, the United States has been very clear that it's concerned about the subsidies that are given to Airbus. The Europeans have been relatively intransigent on that. The United States has been very clear that it's concerned about some of the recent investigations from the commission into U.S. tech companies. And the U.S. recently gave Commissioner Vestager more power. I mean, the EU recently gave Commissioner Vestager more power. And the EU recently picked as its new trade commissioner a man who said that he would teach President Trump the error of his ways. So that is how the Europeans have decided to manage this relationship. And there may be consequences. But didn't we go first by putting steel and aluminum tariffs on their stuff? Well, they sell us, they, they run a massive trade surplus with the United States. We are one of their biggest export markets. They uh, are not as nearly as great a market for us. They're not nearly as open to us as we are to them. Um, and so I would say the answer to that is, is no. The average tariff rate isn't that much higher than the U.S. is. I mean, it's still pretty low, right? It's like a percentage point or something on average. So, Are you talking about between us and the Europeans? Yeah. Well, you know, for example, that the president is concerned about the relative values of the two currencies. This is something that he's spoken about quite a bit. He's concerned about the relative interest rates in the two markets. Um, he, he has been very, very clear that he thinks this relationship should be rebalanced that we should produce more and that they should consume more. And I think, you know, we had this disagreement in the 70s, which led to a rebalancing of, of currencies. We had a very similar agreement in the mid-80s, which led to a rebalancing of currencies. Um, and it just seems to be sort of a chronic disagreement between the United States and the Europeans. Let's move on to the WTO's appellate body, which has a few weeks' life left. Could you summarize why the U.S. is killing the WTO's appellate body? So there was a dispute settlement process that was agreed to back in the early 90s. And there was a thought that as part of that dispute settlement process, there should be an appellate body to make sure that the dispute settlement panels didn't go too far in any one direction. The appellate body was supposed to issue its decisions within 90 days. The view in America was it would basically be a backstop to make sure that panels didn't make major mistakes. Since that time... The appellate body has basically become its own sort of rules-making body. They issue massive opinions. They fill in gaps in the trade laws. They try to answer questions that the members left open during the negotiations. For roughly 20 years or so, American policymakers of both parties have been warning the rest of the world that this was a problem, that the United States never agreed to this sort of a process, and that it would make support for the appellate body politically unsustainable in the United States. And that's how we got to be where we are. So the way it's, it's been explained to me is that one of the really big American concerns has to do with trade remedies and, and in particular anti-dumping. And as part of the Uruguay round, the, 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 the agreement that ushered in the WTO, there's this thing called Article 17.6 of the anti-dumping agreement, whereby dispute settlement is supposed to give deference to domestic authorities that do these anti-dumping investigations. So in the U.S. case, that would be Department of Commerce uh, and the International Trade Commission. And anti-dumping protection in the United States has been very, very important, but only for a couple of sectors, one of which is, is, is steel. And wh when I run the numbers on this, 
it looks to me like we're talking about anti-dumping covering about two, maybe 3% of, of U.S. imports. So how would you respond to, to skeptics that would say that this is all about the WTOs threatening the, the livelihood of the Washington, D.C. trade bar and, and taking away uh, a big source of their business? Well, I think that would be as credible as saying that the supporters of the appellate body are the trade lawyers in Washington who make money suing the United States in Geneva, right? There's a lot of that business as well. So I, I don't. I think we should sort of put all that off to one side. I mean, the truth of the matter is, as you know, and you guys are very knowledgeable about this, uh, anti-dumping laws and countervailing duty laws are extraordinarily politically sensitive in the United States. We are a country that runs a massive trade deficit. We have all we have run it for, you know, my entire adult life, and we are likely to continue running it for as long as we are the world's reserve currency. So there's always been a need for some sort of a circuit breaker or some sort of a way where com companies and manufacturers who are to feel like they're at an unfair disadvantage can get some type of relief. And that's one of the reasons I think you see that the anti-dumping duty laws are very sensitive here in a way that they may not be in other countries. Um, the appellate body obviously hasn't been sensitive to any of that, and they've simply trampled those laws every chance they've gotten. Uh, but I don't really think that's the only issue here. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is they, they've been very, very aggressive everywhere. They were very aggressive in what they did to the safeguard agreement. They were very aggressive in terms of now they want to, a lot of people over there want to weigh in on national security issues. I mean, they're just, they really have a very expansive view of what the appellate body can do. But I do want to pull out one thing that you said there where, you know, this is often explained as if it's a it's a fight between the Americans and the Europeans over their visions, differing visions of law, that the appellate body has become or is threatening to become more like the European Court of Justice. Um, but what tends to be the case in a lot of these disputes is it's one American law firm fighting it out against another American law firm. The second American law firm is representing maybe the Europeans in a case or the Japanese or Koreans or, or uh, the Chinese increasingly. And so to an outsider who looks at this, you would say this is just an intra-family fight between Washington, D.C. law firms uh, and, and one side right now, the, the side that represents uh, the anti-dumping pro-community is, is threatening to rip up the system because of that. Well, I just don't think that's credit. I just don't think, I just totally disagree with that. I don't think any part of that is true. I think that you have a situation where for a very, very long time, the Bush administration and the Obama administration warned the rest of the world that the United States did not agree to give up the level of sovereignty that is implied by the type of decisions we've been seeing from the appellate body. The United States views the WTO agreements the same way the United States tends to view most of its international agreements as a sort of contract. We have made a certain set of commitments, but our elected officials cannot bind other elected officials or future elected officials or the U.S. government in terms of policy matters to which we have not agreed. Um, that is a very sensitive issue for the United States. Um, we expect our elected officials to be responsible to our voters. And so we simply cannot be put in a situation whereby we make a decision on a piece of policy that was left open to us and that we feel was clearly left to the members to decide, and the appellate body jumps up and says, no, 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 that's for us to decide. That's the real issue here. And, and this idea to sort of say that it's just a fight between different parts of the, of the bar, I think, is, is simply not correct. Looking at this from the rest of the world, the experience that they've had is not one where they have seen a set of proposals from the U.S. in terms of how to improve the system, and they've said, no, we don't want those proposals. Their experience of this, this whole thing has been the U.S. saying, we have a problem with the system. We don't like it. The rest of the world saying, okay, well, we could make this change or this change, and the U.S. just repeatedly saying, we don't like it, we don't like it, and not really kind of engaging with the the offers of reform that, that people in Geneva have been trying to put together. And, and that's really, a, you know, a criticism of the, of the U.S. and the way that it's been doing this and the, the criticism that it hasn't 
hasn't really engaged with other member states in Geneva to try and come up with something that would be would be better. What's what's your response to that criticism? I think what the, I think what the Americans have been saying very clearly is is that there has to be a robust conversation over how we came to have such a big misunderstanding in the first place. In other words, clearly the Americans misunderstood what or somebody misunderstood like what we all agreed to. We were told that we had not given up any of our sovereignty and that we had basically entered into this contract and that issues that were left open to the members would be dealt with in future rounds. And in the meantime, members would have freedom to act in those areas. That's what most Americans believed. Clearly, other members don't believe that's what happened. So even on something as trivial as the issue of do you have to issue the decisions within 90 days, the rule is pretty clear that the decisions have to be issued within 90 days. They are not. They are often, it often takes more than a year before they're issued. Is that a violation of the rule or not? The Americans believe it is a violation of the rule. The other people don't think it's a violation. So if we're this far apart, just in terms of the basic concept, what is the point of trying to paper over that? We have to sort of understand how we came to be so far apart in the first place. So what would other members have had to have done that could possibly have convinced the the Americans to stick with some perhaps reformed version of, of the appellate body? Well, I think if we'd had an honest conversation about what how the appellate body was going to work and, and whether it's ever possible to sort of create a, a body that would respect the the rights of the, the retained rights of the members and how you would actually prevent the type of judicial activism that we've seen. But I think there's been, you know, I'm not aware of much interest in that from anybody, really, or anybody talking about it. In fact, as you know, one of the big proposals that came out was is that the Europeans and the Chinese and the Indians put in their own proposal saying, well, what we really want is to have an appellate body with nine members instead of seven members and an appellate body that has a lot more uh, independence and a lot more resources. And all of that, of course, goes completely against the sort of things that the Americans have been talking about. Well, I guess that, that could help to deal with the, the cases more quickly, helping to solve the 90-day the rule. But if the Americans are coming to you and they're saying, the Americans are saying, this process is creating major political problems for us because we simply cannot give up that much policymaking power to an unelected international body. And your response is to say... Actually, we think that unelected international bodies should have a lot more power. That's not really being responsive to U.S. concerns. Yeah, so I, I guess, okay, so let me come at this another way. I think it's possible to hear the U.S. concerns and for it to sound like the U.S. just wants to win all the cases, right? And and when, you, when the U.S. complains about judicial activism or decisions that diminish the the rights of the US, well of course the US is going to complain about decisions that it's lost. And it's not it's not possible to set up any legal process whereby the US could just be promised a win in every single case. So it's not clear that there was ever a a workable fix to that concern. Well again, I mean I think if I think anyone who sort of if that's their takeaway, right? Then to me it really does raise questions about maybe we just are so far apart that we can't really work together. I mean, I don't think anybody seriously believes that the Obama administration or the Bush administration had the view that they wanted to win every single case. And yet they had all these same concerns. But can I ask you then, where is our constructive proposal to have this conversation? So we haven't gotten it from the Europeans or the Chinese or anything yet, but where is the American uh, proposal for how to fix the WTO? Well, one of the problems that we have is, I mean, when I, when I look at the text of the DSU as it reads now. That's the dispute settlement understanding. I think that the Americans who negotiated that text did a pretty good job. I mean, when I read it, and I think when most American lawyers read it, it looks as though you have created a process whereby there will be a panel and then there will be an appellate body, but that appellate body is really constrained. It says that they have to make a decision within 90 days. It says that they can't change the rules and obligations of the parties. You have provisions as like uh, Article 17.6 that are supposed to give deference to members in sensitive areas like the anti-dumping laws. So on paper, it appears to look like a reasonable set of rules. 
In reality, none of those paper protections did the United States very much good at all. That's why I think you see the Americans keep coming back to this question. Until we understand why we are so far apart in terms of how to read the text, simply trying to come up with new text is really a waste of time. So there is no paperable solution to this problem? I don't want to say there's no paperable solution to it. I mean, but I think there has, to me, I would think you would have to see some sort of a of a willingness for other countries to take more seriously the concerns that the Americans have expressed. And I think if, if people are thinking, well, this is just about the trade bar, or well, it's just because the Americans want to win all the time, well, that's not going to be very conducive, and those conversations aren't going to be very productive. But uh, I guess a, a, a final, <laughs> we could have just written down what exactly it is that we wanted to see changed and see what the reaction would have been from a an approach like that. So, for example, let's say that we said that we wanted to make sure that the, that they weren't going to add to the rights and obligations of the members. Well, it already says that. So, I, I don't really, you know, it's not that simple to kind of just come in and, and say we're going to have these different pieces of text. I mean, when I read Article 17.6, for example, it's really, really clear. But when they read it, it has a completely different outcome. So, there's an old school of law in, uh, that goes back to the 20s in, at Yale called legal realism. And the legal realists were people who believed that what matters is not what's on the piece of paper. What matters is who the decision makers are. And the law is whatever they tell you it is, right? And to some extent, this is part of what we're wrestling with here. It's not just a question of kind of what gets written down. It's a question of what's going to actually happen at the other end of that process. And so I think what the Americans have been trying to do is to have a more, you know, a more profound conversation here. And let's see, are we really capable of having a shared judicial process or are our understandings about law and policy so far apart that we're just going to have to find other ways to work together? So in a few weeks' time, we're going to be in a system without, I guess, the international rule of law anymore. We're going to be in a system where basically if you have a dispute, it's going to be power, uh, some kind of negotiation that determines the outcome, at least if the dispute involves the US. I think some some people are quite worried about what what that means in terms of, of who who will lose from that. Perhaps the EU and China can hold their own in, in those kinds of discussions, but smaller countries can't. There's concerns about what that does to the kind of legitimacy of any actions that the US does, the risk that you get lots of mini trade wars out there when you don't have the, the system that is meant to, to stop that from happening. So what's your response to those worries? I think they're all really overblown. We have a trade agreement with Canada. We have a trade agreement with South Korea. We have a trade agreement with Australia. We have a trade agreement with Central America. We have lot. We do lots of trade negotiations with countries that are smaller than us. And I think most of those agreements are really, really popular in the countries that we have them. We have a very open economy. Uh, we continue to uh, run these very large uh, trade deficits and are probably going to we, we're going to have another one this year. Um, and I think is that, that all of these worries um, underestimate the level of support for free trade that exists inside the United States. The United States has been making trade policy for a really, really, really long time. And for the most part, they've made their trade policy in manners, in, in ways that uh, opened, you know, resulted in economic growth. So I, I'm not nearly so worried about these things as other people are. So I know you're a bit of a history buff. Stepping back from all of this, uh, what's your view on you know, how we got to this point in the United States on, on trade policy, thinking back to the, the 2016 election and you know, kind of what the Trump administration's broader approach to thinking about this issue of populism uh, and the, the challenges facing policymakers today? Well, I think if you look at U.S. policymakers in the years after World War II, um, I think they did a really, I think they were really, really successful in terms of uh, promoting free trade and encouraging free trade and in opening up the U.S. market. As you know, Chad, they went from an economy that was really largely a closed economy in a lot of ways for a long time after the Civil War to an economy that became more and more open as the time after uh, World War II passed. 
And I think that one of the reasons that they were so effective about this is that they were very flexible in their thinking and they were constantly uh, updating the rules and making tweaks and making adjustments as needed to maintain political support for this project. So that's why you hear about the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 and the Trade Act of 1974 and the Tokyo Rand Agreements Act of 1979 and the Omnibus Trade Act of 1988 because the American policymakers were making changes so that as the United States opened and became more exposed to trade, you were making sure that Americans were moving on board, right? So there were all these sort of trade-offs that they made along the line. By the late 80s and early 90s, these policies had been enormously successful. And the United States was at a time of great economic growth and optimism. And we'd had this great victory in the Cold War. And I think that U.S. policymakers felt like now we can sort of put this on autopilot and we can create this new system and we don't have to change things and we don't have to, to tweak. And I, I don't think that was correct. I mean, time passes, history moves on, and, and policies that may have looked good in the early 90s may not be as good 25 years down the road. And so we've been updating our tax policy, we've been updating our regulatory policy, and now I think we're t- it's time for us to start updating our trade policy. So was was 2016 then in, in, in the candidacy of, of um, Donald Trump a turning point then? I think of it as part of a, you know, it was definitely a very important turning point and inflection point in a lot of ways. But I think you can, I think when people look back on it, they're going to see it as sort of part of a spectrum, right? In other words, in 2008, candidate Obama and candidate Clinton were very critical of a lot of aspects of U.S. trade policy you had a lot of opposition to trade deals, and that opposition was growing. It was getting more and more difficult for presidents to get trade promotion authority, as you know. Um, You did have a lot of pushback against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it would have been very difficult to pass that deal, uh, whatever happened in 2016. So I think this had been building for some time. And I would point out it's not just here, right? You see it with Brexit. You see it with the Yellow Vest protests in France. You see it in a lot of the populist movements in other parts of the world. So I think it had been building for a while. Um, and, and now I'm optimistic. I have a lot of faith in the U.S. policymaking process. And I think that we will find ways to manage globalization so that we'll be able to keep the best of it uh, and yet alleviate some of the things that people have been complaining about. I suppose a, a counter argument might be, though, that a lot of the challenges facing American workers don't have much to do with trade. It has to do with just the changing nature of the American economy becoming less manufacturing oriented, more uh, a services oriented economy, uh, the, the, all these new technologies, the internet. Decline of unions. Decline of unions. And by loading all of this onto trade, uh, it may not actually be helping the the very folks that have been suffering over the last 10, 20 years, and it may not help them adjust to the challenges that they're going to face in the future as technology continues to evolve and and automation occurs, uh, and and they have they're forced to, to to make these changes. So what do we do? What, what do we do then? Well, I mean, one thing I think yeah, look if you have a, if you have any organization and certain one part of the organization isn't contributing in the way that it should. I don't think the answer is to say, well, that's only a small part of the organization, and, and let's just ignore that. I think what you try to do is you try to get all the different parts of the organization to work better. If we need better tax policy or we need better regulatory policy or we need more things for different things for union workers or however we choose to address this, we should do all that. But at the same time, if we need to make adjustments in the trade policy, we should make adjustments in the trade policy. To me, I don't think putting trade policy back on the ballot is going to make American politicians less responsive to these other concerns. It may make American politicians more responsive to the other concerns because as people have more faith in the trade policy, they may be more willing to say, okay, well, now I I have confidence in the trade policy. Now let's talk about some of these other issues. I want to try to see if I can put my finger on how we disagree. So we think of, as economists, we think of trade as as being win-win. And yes, I can impose tariffs on you and I can make myself slightly better off because of those tariffs. But the problem is you can do the same thing to me and and we're both then worse off by doing this to each other. And we can both be made better off if we cooperate with each other. 
and we're, we're more open, but it's going to involve both of us restraining what it is that we do, both of us giving up a little bit of sovereignty. And we can do that and we'll, we will both be made better off. But that is a, a view of the world that I think economists have that maybe not everybody does share. So I think, I think again, I think you're conflating what policy outcomes you want with the process to get at those outcomes. I would argue that from 1946 to 1994, the United States had very robust debates over trade. And the United States had uncertainty in its trade policy, and the United States made adjustments to its trade policy. And there were elections fought over trade policy, and there were candidates who took responsibility for trade policy. And the result was a GATT system that flourished and grew and that ultimately led to a booming economy in the United States and in Europe and in East Asia, and that led to exactly the type of policy outcomes that you want. After 1994, we decided to take this out of the hands of the voters and out of the hands of elected officials, and we chose to sort of seal it up in this kind of um, cage whereby policymakers wouldn't be able to touch it, and it would sort of run of its own accord. And the result is the rise of China, slowing economies in the West, dislike of globalization, the rise of populism, Brexit, and lots of other things that are actually tearing against the type of policy outcomes that you want. I believe that to get the, to have market-efficient outcomes, you have to let the political process work and give it a chance. Otherwise, I just don't think you're ever going to get there. And so I think that your process is undercutting your policy outcomes. And I would urge you to kind of give the system more of a chance. And, you know, we're all taught in America that you have your policy outcomes, but all that has to play out in our constitutional process. And I, I think that's correct. I mean, whatever you want to have happen, you can, you're going to be more likely to get it and make it stick if it's something that the voters really believe in and really support. Yeah, I just, I guess, perhaps then we just disagree about what the political process is is driving us towards. I mean, thinking about the recent trade war stuff, I mean, there's evidence that the retaliatory tariffs... So far, the trade war process has gotten you to record low unemployment. It's gotten you to really low inflation. It's gotten you to a very high stock market. Those things would have happened anyway. We, well, I, I mean, but the, the I, unemployment rate is not you because and I, of the trade war. We disagree with that. I disagree with you on that. I, I Look, if you go back and you look at what the projected outcomes that people were thinking about in 2016, we've done better than projected. Okay. I mean, we'll we'll agree to disagree on on that one. Well, we're not going to agree to disagree over the projections because those are written in paper. Sure, I think it's the causality that I'm disputing. That's a different issue. But the point of it is, is is that I think you're way too pessimistic over what these policy outcomes are likely to be. You seem to have bought into this idea that the Americans are just naturally protectionist, and that unless they are constrained by their betters in other countries, that they will lash out and do all sorts of harm to themselves and to the world. And the history of the world just doesn't show that. Really? Really. I thought the 1990s was the rest of the world saying, America keeps on lashing out the rest of the world. We need to have the WTO so they don't do that anymore. Well, again, I don't think that's what, to me, that's not how I interpret that history. The United States didn't see it that way. The Americans believed, and I think the history shows, that they had built up a global trading system that was really, really effective. I mean, part of what we were told the WTO was going to do is it was going to get other countries to be more open to our products. Well, let me ask you this. Are you concerned that what the United States is doing is immoral? Or are you concerned that what the United States is going to lead to bad outcomes? So I think they are related. I think that when you have power, you shouldn't abuse it. And I think that if you do abuse it, then in the long run, it weakens the system. So I think if you're the Indians right now, you say, well, bef before the Indians would, you know, they'd hold all, all sorts of things hostage. Everyone was super annoyed at the Indians. You could, you know, blame them for crashing various agreements. And now it's like, well, they're just doing what the U.S. does. And so you kind of lower the standard. Well, let's start with the point about the issue of morality. The, to me, the moral question is, 
is the United States government being responsive to the American voters and to the American people? If it's not, then to me, that's not a proper way the government should act. It's our government, and ultimately, it owes a duty to us. We are, we are meant to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And they should get the type of government they want, not the type of government that seems best to others. I have much more faith than you do that the Americans are going to vote for open markets and efficient market outcomes because that's what they've been voting for pretty much continuously since the end of World War II. My concern on that, though, is when their elected officials um, aren't explaining to them, in my view, accurately as an economist, what the benefits of trade are and, and, and where, things, where there are real problems with trade and, and U.S. trade policy, and they conflate things that we shouldn't be concerned about, like bilateral trade deficits, for example. I think there's always, you know, reasons to think that technocrats can make better decisions than the voters. Uh, but I think history has shown for the most part that the voters are better at knowing their own interests. And I trust them and I trust our process. And I think that it's, it's worse to interfere with that process than it is to try to work within it. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is just an empirical question, right? We'll, we'll find out. There is some evidence that Voters were not happy with some of the retaliatory tariffs in the midterm elections. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, lots of evidence that that all this trade policy is going to heal all the workers and make them um, make them whole again, uh, and restore their love for for globalization. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that is all for trade talks. A huge thanks to Stephen Vaughn for engaging in probably the most combative episode of trade talks we've ever had. I learned a lot. I did too. Remember, do listen to other episodes of Trade Talks. Uh, and we would welcome any high-level European officials to offer their response. Uh, Cecilia, you're welcome anytime. Phil Hogan, the floor is yours. <laughs> and thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to senior trade officials coming on Trade Talks, two would be better than one. Hey, Cecilia. <laughs>